There's a lot of wild talk in the music industry these days. Streaming is the death of the business. Streaming is the salvation of the business. Downloads are being phased out. Downloads are surprisingly strong. Vinyl is hot, but not for everyone. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. On today's show, we're talking about what's going on with music consumption and what it means for the industry. We'll talk to people who are paying attention to how music is being consumed and discuss what these consumption patterns might mean going forward. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business. We're talking to Russ Krupnik of Music Watch. Russ, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. So, you are a person who is, at least in some capacity, looking at how music is being consumed these days. Is that correct? So, when people ask me what I, what I actually do in music, I often say that I represent the voice of the consumer. You know, we hear so much from artists or executives or other kinds of experts, and I think often we don't hear enough from the actual consumers in terms of of what they're doing and what they believe and think about music these days. So through our research we try to try to represent their voice. So how are people consuming music in 2016? <laughs> it's a story of diversity and choice. It's surprising how many different ways people have of consuming music, listening to music, buying music, occasionally stealing music. One of the things that is always interests me is there's a lot of conversation that nobody buys music anymore. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. There are you know, over 50 million people in the United States last year who bought a CD. And you know, that ranges from younger people, although they're buying fewer of them, to, you know, to baby boomers. So we still have a lot of people buying CDs, although it's, you know, far from what it was in the heyday. We have a lot of people who continue to buy digital downloads, although admittedly that's on, on a bit of a slide. Certainly we see now almost three quarters of the population is streaming music in, in some fashion, and we can talk about how they do it in, a little bit more. And um, we still see folks, you know, kind of stealing things here and there. So tremendous diversity in, in, in terms of how it's being acquired and listened to. And certainly from a device standpoint, you know, we see everything from people still, you know, listening in the car on AM, FM radio to using more than half of people use their phones to listen to music. You know, a small percentage, but growing, are starting to use you know, Bluetooth speakers, things like Sonos, some of the, the products that Bose offers. So it's, it's just massive diversity, massive choice. So the music industry, in my humble opinion, tends to sometimes be a little hysterical. And I feel like we've lately gotten this kind of hysterical message that everything is moving to streaming and we have to move everything, all of our resources to streaming immediately, you know, cut all ties with everything in the past, and boom, go for that immediately. How do you feel about that? 
I think the industry, there there was a lesson about, you know, 10 years ago or so when the industry, and I want to be careful because, you know, the industry is, is not only people at, at labels, but it's also people on the supply chain. So, you know, sometimes if you go back to the days of the CD, the distribution companies didn't necessarily have all of the power. A lot of that power rested at places like, you know, Walmart and Target and Tower. So, you know, some of this wasn't naturally of their own doing. But the example that I would give is the industry went into a real chasm between the CD and the digital download. There were a lot of people who used to buy CDs who never made the transition to iTunes or never made the transition to Amazon MP3. And as a result, in, you know, in the late aughts, we, we saw the industry, even before streaming, we saw the industry start to collapse. And I think that was a great example of, uh, in a sense, abandoning a format in anticipation of the next format. I think the lesson there is, you know, we need to make smooth transitions between these formats because if you abandon the people who are still buying downloads or even who are still buying CDs, but aren't, haven't been monetized on streaming, you're likely to see some revenue hits. Absolutely. So what do you, what's your feeling about you know, the different streaming services that are out there, the subscription services versus the ad-supported? I mean, what do you think, where do you think those things are going? I, I think you know, it, it's hard to predict very far out in the future, but I would say if we were to look at the next, let's just say five years, I think that there's going to be a place for ad-supported services. If you think about services that, you know, a service like Pandora that uh, offers radio stations is very easy to use for people who, you know, aren't necessarily music savants. It works in locations where I, you know, maybe I don't have the time to fiddle with my playlists or where, you know, (laughs) if I'm running seven miles an hour on a treadmill, I'm not you know, picking my albums on demand. So I I think that the internet radio model, whether it's you're talking about something that is iHeart or Pandora, but anything that serves up radio stations, I think has a lot of value to to certain uh, market segments and in certain use situations. On the other hand, you know, on demand, if you really want control of the, the music experience, on demand is the way to go. You know, the challenge is, I'm sure we'll discuss is how do you shift people from perhaps a free on-demand experience or an ad-supported on-demand experience to, you know, a fully paid subscription. And I think that's really going to be the the challenge over the next couple of years. Do you have any insights about this? I mean, you brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) just want to, I wanted to be able to take a breath so you could ask, <laughs> you could ask a question and your, your listeners could breathe as well. Right. Yeah, I think what we're going to see is, I, I think you'll see increasing, I think it's a couple of things. Number one is, and, and as much as I dislike the term, it's the one we're stuck with, the industry, I think, has to figure out what the message is to a larger group of consumers regarding paying. You know, consumers don't haven't so far reacted to exclusives or or windows or things of that sort. In fact, when you ask people why they pay, it's really the glory of the on-demand experience, the, the ability to 
pick what you want, pick your specific songs, pick your specific artists, pick specific albums, and play them as you want and build and customize your playlists. And I, I honestly think, although I think there's a place for, for all formats, I think you could get more people paying if you could start helping people understand that premium experience. The other thing I, I think is going to happen, and, and you know, we can use the term premium again, is I think you're going to start to see differentiation on the paid services. You will start seeing premium content. You will start seeing windowing. You may have music videos that you can't get anywhere else for free. You may have you know, concert footage. You may have concert streams. All kinds of things that enrich the experience and may convince consumers to start spending for a monthly subscription. And I, this is just a this is a question that's come up before just in my life as a person in the music industry, which is that the vast majority of people don't seem to really be music fanatics. Do you know what I mean? The difference between a music fanatic is someone who really, you know, is an obsessive vinyl collector, you know, at this point, people buy things on cassette. There, there are, there's a subset of people who really, really care. But then there's a huge, vast majority of people who kind of just, you know, music is the background to their life. Yep. And if that is, in fact, our greatest number of consumers, you know, is there anything that can be done about that? Because, you know, we're basically then talking about people who sort of have vague preferences, but not really passion. Well, certainly the research bears that out. We've looked at exactly what you brought up several times over the past few years, and you could argue that between 85 and 90% of people are more mainstream. But I think even within the mainstream, there are pockets of, you know, there's the mainstream and then there's the, you know, the really casual, casual mainstream, the people who are, are really going to be difficult to monetize. But I think they were difficult to monetize 20 years ago. Right. You know, not much has changed. You know, the devices may change, the services change, the, the, the jargon changes, but I think that consumer, that consumer profile was probably the same as it used to be. So, I, I mean, to your point, we're, we're not, I'm not convinced we're going to get everyone to start, start spending $100 a year but I think that there are deeper market segments. I'll give you a great example. About maybe a quarter, if you do that market segmentation, about a quarter of that group would, would be baby boomers, you know, who grew up with a real passion for music. They're, they're still spending money, but they're spending it on experiences like going to, you know, concerts before all of the, the bands they were fans of are no longer touring. And What's really important to them are things like music rediscovery. It's not so much the latest Rihanna or Justin Bieber or Beyonce album, but it's helped me rediscover the experiences that I had in my teens and in my 20s. So the question is, you know, can we create playlists that people will pay for? Can we tailor the streaming services to those, that kind of an audience perhaps making it easier to use, you know, rather than adding levels of complexity, make it easier and make it really geared towards that kind of a marketplace. And I think we're absolutely seeing that in the form of Spotify playlists. You know, the popularity of Spotify playlists is legendary at this point in the industry. If you get a song, I mean, we recently had this where a song that was really a sort of a deep cut off of one of an, old, an older album by one of our artists 
got put onto a playlist called something like, you know, the most beautiful songs in the world. Next thing you know, we were all like, hey, where'd all this money come from for this song? It's so bizarre. But suddenly it popped up, you know, very clearly in our payments from Spotify. And I think that's part of it is that people want that kind of an experience. They want to, I mean, I certainly know if, if you're just going to play a Duran Duran playlist, I'm there because that was my youth. <laughs> but I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm also in the business and I, I am a music fanatic and other levels. So I sort of see it from both sides. Right. But I, I, I think everybody, regardless of where you are along the spectrum, has favorite artists has experiences with music. You know, I hate to be, it sounds corny, but we do have this, music is the soundtrack of our lives. (laughs) And, you know, I think regardless of whether you're somebody who's building your own playlists and sharing and chatting about them and so on and so forth, or you're just, you know, kind of leaning back and going, you know, wow, I haven't heard that you know, in, you know, whether it's 10 years or 30 years or 40 years, you know, I, I think you could share in the same quality of experience. And I think it's, you know, a few years ago when, when everybody started talking about ownership being dead, I don't think so. I think playlists are the new ownership. And I do think just the way that we used to go in and buy, you know, CDs, catalog CDs, you know, that that's, we will either pay for the services that offer those playlists or we'll pay for the playlists ourselves or you know, we may pay for some premium experience that's offered by our favorite artists. And I, I, I think that's true across most of the spectrum. Well, I agree with you. And I think on that note, Russ Krupnik is the managing partner of Music Watch Incorporated. Thank you, Russ, for being on The Future of What? Thank you for having me. It was a, a pleasure. Nothing is Easy by Marnie Stern. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What, 
we're talking to Jim Ledestri of Buzz Angle Media. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What? Glad to be here, Portia. So I think probably we'll start out right at the top by having you explain what Buzz Angle Music is and what you guys do. We are the first true big data analytics company in the music space. We measure all of the true consumption that happens, such as the physical sales, albums, the digital sales, whether that's albums or songs, and most importantly in these days, the digital streaming that happens. So we collect data from each of the retailers and service providers. So the physical providers such as your Best Buys and your Targets and your Amazons who sell both physical and digital, as well as the digital only providers such as your Apple and, and Google Play in that category. And then the digital song streamers such as your Spotify, your Rhapsody, your YouTube, et cetera. So we take all that data every single day, process it so the very next day our customers can see exactly what's happening in music consumption. And the other part of what you do that's fascinating is that you allow users to generate their own reports, right? You can, if you're, if I'm a user, if I'm a label and I have a band that's coming out, which I do, I can go into Buzz Angle Music and I can say, how many albums did my band sell last night at their show? And, you know, they played in Philadelphia. What was the consumption in Philadelphia yesterday, right? Absolutely, yes. Some of the uh, advantages of our system, first of all, it's a daily system, so we process every single day. Uh, If you're playing at a show in Philadelphia, you want to see what happened that very next day, so you need a daily system to do that. You also need one that's very uh, deep and granular and able to drill down. So we give the ability for the users to select amongst a bunch of criteria to actually be able to filter. You might want to compare yourself against other in a certain genre in that particular area to see how you compare. So you need the depth of the data to be able to filter to that level. And we provide both the the global ability to process the data fast and then as well as the the unique ability to kind of really drill down at a fine point. And this is really a breakthrough in this particular space because up until now, we've labels and distributors who are usually the consumers of this kind of information have really only had Nielsen SoundScan to look at. And SoundScan is, has had some you know, significant drawbacks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I come from the tech sector, not from the music sector. And, and coming from the tech background, when I first saw the Nielsen SoundScan system, I realized that, boy, in this day and age, especially with the business models changing and streaming becoming much more important, that, yeah, you needed a much better tool to be able to analyze what's happening so that these business models can evolve. So I thought that was a great time to, to get into the market and build a tool to really disrupt the market and to present a tool that in, in service to the industry that can actually help it get to the next phase of, of, our, of our evolution. Absolutely, because SoundScan in the past has really only shown weekly data, and then when you do get to look at it, it's like several days old, right? It's weekly data, so you you see what happened at the end of the week. So, you know, the, the, that was the, what first really kind of struck me as odd, was that uh, when you're an artist and a label and a, and a brand manager and a radio promotion guy, no matter what field you're in, a tour manager, a venue operator, you're always looking at what happened on a day, right? It doesn't really do you any good to see what happened across the week. You might have three tour stops that week. Uh, if you perform on a show or, or you're a brand and you want to do a sync license for a commercial, it doesn't matter what it is. 
you really need to be able to get down to that granular level. So I was, I was pretty shocked at that, uh, that yes, you'd have to wait a week. And even then waiting the week, you still couldn't actually see what happened on the particular day. It was kind of blended across all the other days. So uh, that was really not what was going to help the industry really get to the next step. It's really fascinating. I mean, for an independent label like mine, this is kind of a breakthrough because, you know, SoundScan measures album sales, but that doesn't necessarily give you a very full picture of a market in which maybe, let's say, my artist does better on Spotify. Maybe my artist is on 10 Spotify playlists, you know, and so they're streaming like crazy, but they actually don't have that many physical album sales. So it really, it's like a huge game changer. Absolutely. We coined the term total consumption, where we look at the entire project. So we consider that album or the song really an entire project encompassing the traditional album sales and then the song sales, digital song sales, as well as all the streaming activity lumped into this one term we call a a project. So you can see how it's doing because multiple artists may sell multiple different ways. Right. You see some more traditional artists, you see an artist like a Barbra Streisand uh, come out with a new album and does very, very well physically because that's the makeup of her, you know, her, her customers, right? Her fans are in that age bracket. They, they like the physical product. And then you'll see other albums do extremely well uh, boosted, you know, by the streaming. We saw the Kanye West recent album, you know, the Drake a recent album do extremely well boosted to a large degree by the streaming activity. So it's great to be able to to have both of those in the system and be able to compare them and to make sure that you really encompass everything. Because yes, in the, in the old world, if you only looked at album sales, you'd be missing half the pie. So Jim, tell us about how this has, I mean, you guys just started, you, you started last year, you had your launch right after global release date, the new global release date last year. And then you were in beta. So you launched in, did you launch October 2015? We came kind of into what we call kind of full beta right on global release day on uh, July the 10th in 2015. And Tuesday, the May 17th, we're releasing our next version, version 2.0 of the service. We're very excited about that, kind of taking what we've done, which is already industry leading to the, to the next level. Yeah, I think this is a big deal. I also, have you guys gotten a lot of market penetration yet? Do you, do you have lots of people who know about this or is it sort of slowly percolating out into the world? It was, I think it was slowly percolating starting around global release. Their name was getting out there and people were starting to say, hey, who, who are you? But most recently, especially with the release of some of these uh, albums where we've been able to provide the industry with better numbers, probably even starting with Adele's. A 25 album where we were really tracking it day by day and, and giving the press and the industry up-to-date numbers. And then through the, the Drake album of last week, really being able to build some momentum and now more and more people are becoming familiar with it. And the, I think we're probably at the beginning of a, a, a tremendous growth curve right now because I think it's it's not just a, hey, who's that cute little thing over there now? It's like, hey, we need that that cute little thing over there. Well, exactly. And I think that's the part about Buzz Angle that's so exciting for people like me is, you know, a lot of times you can feel really left out of the previous chart system, because if you know you're not going to sell a million copies and you know you're not going to sell 100,000 copies, you're kind of like, well, charts are not for us, right? That's just not where our artists are at. But with with this new measuring technique and, and being able to bring into play all the other ways that people are consuming music, 
it really means, you know, I don't have to shy away from the concept of charts anymore. I can go and actually look and see, you know, what are we doing? Who's buying us and where and how, you know, it's, it's giving us the option to get more information, which is information that we actually need. Yes, I was actually surprised at how much emphasis there was on the charts when I first started the company. I realized that charts are important. People like to see, hey, top 10, top 25, top 100, whatever it is. But the true power of our system really isn't just to say, hey, you know, Adele's number one, Drake's number one, Kanye's number one. It's really to help the artists below that, right? To understand what do I do? I get the most enjoyment uh, when we're at a trade show, we have our booth, we're demonstrating our service and an emerging artist will come up and, and we'll be able to pull up their data right there and then in front of them. And sometimes it's very small numbers. I, I did, you know, 500 song streams last week, but it's, it's just so powerful to be able for them to see that data and then to drill down and say, okay, I had, three stops on a mini little tour that I was doing and to be able to see where the consumption is spiking, where maybe it happened in in one uh, city, but not another city. So they can actually plan a better tour by looking at the data. And for me, that's at the end of the day, you can have a great system and you can be pumping out data, but if you can't make a better decision, then, then really what is it worth? So that to me is what we really, we really want to get to is, allowing people to make better business decisions. And in these particular cases, that's great because they, they hone right in on that and can say, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to Phoenix. I should go to Albuquerque on my next tour. So that's the, the real power. So when you have artists who, you know, I, I would assume that basically a lot of the top artists, like top 10, you're still going to see in the top 10 when you add all the data streams together because they're very popular artists like Adele or Drake or whatever. But like you said, it's when you get below that top 10 that you probably start seeing surprises and names popping up that people wouldn't normally have equated with, you know, a top 100 band, which is to me the interesting part of this from an independent label standpoint. Absolutely. And we think, you know, A&R is going to be a tremendous uh, use of our system for people being able to get down into the indie artists and the indie labels and see, hey, who might I want to sign if I'm a bigger label? So now they can drill down as far as they want. And in the Nielsen system, you know, you're only really looking at the top 500 and sometimes only the top 250. We have people in our system running the top 10,000, 20,000 deep reports because they want to see who's percolating up so they can specify a genre or a particular area of the country and say, let me see who's growing over the past, you know, number of weeks, you know, and that's the exciting part, right? We should really be enabling some of these emerging artists to be seen more than they ever were before. I think your system is so interesting because you can change it by region. So you can get a regional report and see who's doing well in your area. And that's incredible. I mean, that's very powerful for people to know, you know, what's going on in their own home region. Like you said, it's it's useful for labels, but it's also useful for artists because artists can have a better idea and understanding of how they might promote themselves where they live. Absolutely. They can look at their own consumption and then they can also look at like artists, similar artists, so they can hone in on their particular genre and actually see what might be working and what might not be working on the other side, so they don't—they have the advantage of being able to really do some some testing 
by just looking at other artists, say, how was this album performing? Maybe better than that. Or and another album, another song, et cetera, from these various artists. So that might actually shape their direction. So yes, you can hone in not only on your local area, but then even further refined by genre and other kind of criteria like that. So yeah, you're really being able to almost do whatever you want to, to pick the numbers out and to make the decisions you need to make. Have you guys found any particular, you know, do you have any sort of statements at this point about the trends that you're seeing in consumption in the U.S. right now? Well, we're certainly over the last year, year and a half, I mean, we saw the doubling of of streaming consumption from 2014 to 2015, where it actually doubled in size, both audio streaming and video streaming. Uh, Some of the new trends we're seeing over the past few months are, are actually also very exciting. Uh, we see the the video streaming, which is just tremendous. We see it still growing, but at a slower rate than it was before. And what we're seeing now is more tremendous growth on the subscription audio streaming side of the equation, which should be very favorable for the for the indie artists. There's been a lot talked about getting that average revenue per user up to the artists. And one way to do it is to is to get the consumption higher for the subscription based streaming, and we are actually seeing those trends happening right now. So we're very excited about that. Well, this is a very exciting system that you guys have put together. Thanks for doing it. Jim Ledestri is the CEO of Buzz Angle Music. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Anytime, Portia. Thank you very much.
was Great Skulls by Boats. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to Tom Silverman of Tommy Boy Entertainment. Tom, welcome back to The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. Great to talk to you as always. Great to be here. So today we are talking about this exciting and important topic of how music is consumed in this day and age and how there's a discrepancy, you would say, between how it's being reported that people consume music and how people are actually consuming music. So would you like to get into that? Well, what do you mean when you say by reported? Well, I think there's a general feeling that everybody has moved to streaming 100%. And that that's where Ah. every moment of our time and every dollar that we have should be invested from now on. Yeah, right. That's totally not true. And in America, the biggest revenue center in net revenue to the industry is actually still digital downloads, believe it or not. Wow. And then after that, the next big biggest one is physical records that still sell quite a bit. People are surprised at how much people are still buying physical records, but something like 52 million Americans buy at least one record a year, and about 42 million roughly buy a download a year. Far less than that stream, at least subscription streaming is probably closer to 10 or 12 million, a much smaller number. Ad-supported streaming, who knows, you know, if you think about YouTube, that number is way over 100 million. But the amount of consumption is not, well, I mean, it's still the biggest kind of consumption. So I am, I have a big pet peeve with this use of the word streaming, because to me, FM radio is streaming. You know, it's music that's streaming over the air to your radio and you're listening to it just like Pandora is streaming, but it's program streaming. You know, what what we're really talking about is is on-demand streaming where you can listen to any song you want whenever you want to listen to it. And there you have two forms of the business. One is subscription music and the other is ad-supported music. And they're vastly different in terms of their impact on musicians' lives by generating revenue. And I think talking about the value gap between subscription music and ad-supported music is one of the things that's a big conversation in the music industry these days. How do you think we, I mean, in general, what do you think we're looking at in terms of, you know, as labels, you and I and many other people, you know, we're, we're really hoping to generate revenue for our artists. And the opportunities to do so have been shrinking in certain ways and growing in others. You know, what do you think our best bets at this point are for generating revenue? Well, I think that we have to look at the entire ecosystem. There's six major revenue centers in the business, you know, physical music sales, digital music sales, ad-supported streaming, subscription streaming, sound exchange revenue, which is Pandora and SiriusXM that operate under a statutory right that the government gives, but they all pay, and I think... uh, there was over $800 million paid out to artists and labels last year by Sound Exchange. About 17% of the net revenue, or 18%, came from Sound Exchange last year. And that number continues to grow, second only to subscription as the big revenue center of the music business. And then sync revenue that you get for TV, film, and advertising use. So those are the six areas in the present moving into the future that will drive revenue. And they all drive different amounts of revenue, both on a per-listen basis and also on a per-user basis, which we call ARPU, average revenue per user, how much revenue we can get per user per year for using whatever 
it is they're using. And these things are not mutually exclusive, these six areas. In fact, there's almost nobody who doesn't listen to music or watch a music video on YouTube, but they also might use Pandora and subscribe to SiriusXM or subscribe to Spotify and buy a vinyl record so, or download something. You know, and usually two, three, or four of these things they do. So they're additive, right? I just came from a meeting at uh, YouTube, and there was some on the way there. We were talking about this conversation about how how much people listen to music and who really listens. And you know, some people think that only twenty percent of Americans or people in general really love music and are engaged with it, and eighty percent really don't care about it at all. They'll hear it incidentally, they like it in the background, like movie soundtracks or whatever, but you know they don't choose music as a primary source of entertainment. I'm not sure if that number's right, and I love to see, I think our industry has to try to drive that number up. I'm not really sure how to do that other than genetically cleansing the population of people <laughs> who don't like music, but <laughs> we, we had that discussion at Medium one year. Just, let's call, kill all of the people. <laughs> they don't like music, <laughs> so they can't have babies, and then we have people genetically that like music. I mean, there definitely is uh, a great thing that the IFPI does in their report is they run this thing as the per capita music spending by country, and you can see that UK is number one this year. They spent like $22 per person. Every man, woman, and child in the UK contributed on the average $22 which is more than Japan and Norway this year. And the United States moved to number eight this year with, I think, maybe $16 or 15 and a half, which is way below. Mm-hmm. I mean, our business would have another billion and a half in revenue if we had the same music per capita music consumption rates of the UK. I mean, when you go to England, the record stores are packed with people looking through old vinyl records and stuff. And it's like a religion there. It's very different than it is here. Definitely. And in other countries like France, People don't care at all. Right. You know, it's not, right. it's not that important. <laughs> right. So it's very interesting how people, certain people can't live without music and other people don't care about it much. And, you know, so there's all of these factors. You know, it's not just cut and dry that, you know, subscription is great, YouTube is bad, you know, Pandora is good, radio is bad. I mean, it's, uh, there's so many variables. It's very hard to fathom. It's so complicated. Well, that's and that's totally true. But that said, there are some things that we can do or that we're talking about doing where we can sort of try to help people move towards those revenue generating income streams that are actually higher than others, right? Yes. We can manage the ecosystem to generate the greatest crop. Okay. Right. So our if we want our ecosystem to be highly productive so that it can employ more artists and so more musicians can thrive. We need to increase the amount of money that's in the entire pot of music revenue money that exists, which will always trickle down to artists. I mean, if you go back to 1999, somewhere between five and ten times more artists were signed to labels than now, and probably three to four times as much money was spent on each of them developing them. You know, um, all of the great rock artists that grew up during the 80s and 90s had one or two, almost all of them, had one or two albums that did twenty or 30,000. Those artists would all have been dropped maybe even before they released that album in this environment. Mm. You know, uh, But in those days, that U2's first album, which was kind of a dog, was all right. Chris Blackwell put that out on Island, and the next record did a lot better, and it made money, and then the next one did even better. 
but that doesn't really happen anymore. When if if the first one doesn't work, there's no second one anymore. So there's just not enough money to invest. So yes, managing the ecosystem for greatest yield, and in this case, yield is what's the highest ARPU, and it just turns out that subscription is the highest ARPU. So how do we drive more people to subscribe to a music service because that's where we're going to grow the business. And we just spoke to Russ Krupnik about this exact topic, and he was saying that he agrees with you that it's driving consumers to the on-demand subscription services that's going to help generate revenue in the future. And he was saying that there has to be a way to get people to understand that they're going to have a better experience in that environment, better than their the free ad-supported environment. And that's yes. that's interesting. How do you think we turn people on to that different experience? So it's the before and after picture. You know, uh, whenever you see those weight loss things or skin cream ads, they always show the person before and the person after. And it's never the after picture that gets you. It's how bad is the before picture, <laughs> right? So if the person's really fat and ugly, and then the after picture, they're they're a little bit less fat, but they have sort of a tan and they're dressed better. You go, I want that one. And, and you buy the product. And, you know, the same thing for skin creams or whatever. So what's the before picture here? So the before picture has to be worse. Right. So if YouTube is offering something or, you know, or any of the services that are ad supported are offering something that is close to equivalent to what people are paying for, why should people pay for it? There needs to be a significant before and after differential in order for people to buy the fat pills. Right. You know, and so the fat pills in this case are subscriptions and we want 100 million people in America alone to subscribe to a music service just as 100 million people in America have subscribed to television either through cable or through satellite or whatever and they're paying almost $100 a month $1200 a year so their arpu is $1200 a year to uh, the TV services you know and ours is we're asking for a measly $10 to access all the music in the world, which seems to be a pretty good value, I think. So I think, you know, there's a potential of between 100 and 150 million paid subscriptions here, but not in an environment where you can get almost the same thing for nothing. Right. And and I guess, you know, it sort of goes back to our original conversation about people who care about music and people who don't, and the vast majority of people kind of don't. And I think we might at some point have to, you know, examine our own rhetoric, because like you just said, you know, for $10 a month, you can have access to every song in the world. Well, maybe to 80% of people, they're like, who cares? Who cares whether I get every song in the world or if I only just get the two songs that I really liked when I was in, you know, the frat in college? So you're not going to get Beyonce the week it comes out or Drake the week it comes out, So, which, which should be okay. You know, if you're a passive and you don't care that much about it, you don't need to have the new records. Maybe you're going to get records that are windowed. So there's one way to reduce the before picture is to have windowing so that every new release is delayed X amount of weeks so that people who are subscribing get all the new releases the day they're released. People who aren't subscribing have to wait two weeks or three weeks or maybe a month or even six months before they get something just the way movies are in movie theaters first, then they went to on sale, and then they finally eventually end up on TV for free, which was ad-supported and generate revenue after two years or three years or five years, but they windowed through this whole cascade of values from the highest value down to the lowest value. That's what's got to happen, and it's going to work out that way because 
nature moves toward the highest efficiency. And now that we understand as an industry that we aren't in the record business, we're in the attention business. And as we can use music and artists to generate attention, that attention can be valued in many, many different ways. We start plugging into this cascade mentality of values. And that's what you're talking about here. And I think it's starting already. There's a lot of talk in the industry about this thing called the value gap. And that's, we want to increase the value gap. The value gap is literally the difference between the before picture and the after picture. So, Tom, what do you think? I feel like when you're saying that there's one thing missing, which is the legislative component, because, for example, Tidal is acting exactly on that model. So they just dropped the Beyonce album and the Drake album, and piracy increased like 2,000% on the Pirate Bay and all these other streaming torrenting sites. So don't, don't you think in order to make this work that we've got to somehow get a legislative solution to close that gap to make it impossible for people to pirate? You know, I love that, but I just don't believe we can get it. First of all, the tech community has way more money than we have, like 100 times more. So they control Washington. We have no control in Washington. So our odds of that happening are less than none, if that's possible. I mean, we don't get paid a penny for radio. (laughs) And since 1921, we have tried to get a, uh, or at least since 1972, when there was a copyright for recordings, we've tried to get a rate for radio. Frank Sinatra lobbied for it. We still don't have one, and it's 2016. Will we ever have one? Who knows? Radio will probably all move to the Internet, so we're going to get paid for it anyway before we could ever get a law passed. It's so hard to get a law passed that any other way is preferable to the legal. I mean, anyone who's watching the political debates and the circus that's going on here understands why the political route is probably not the best way to go to get what you want. If we can get it without the politics, I think, it's a better solution, and I think we can get it without the politics. I think that there are, yes, people who couldn't get Beyonce or couldn't get Kanye or couldn't get Drake will pirate more than they would have pirated otherwise, but those are just the superactives. If it's 20% or whatever the number is, they're a tiny percent, like one-tenth of 1% of that 20% that will do that. It pisses us off, but those people also might be subscribers, but they may just not be subscribing to Tidal. So they're pissed off because they think that if they're subscribing to Spotify, Spotify should have Drake. And it didn't have Drake. So then why am I paying $10 a month and I didn't get Drake? That's one of the concerns with exclusives. What you're talking about is exclusives. I'm not talking about a, a Tidal versus Spotify versus Deezer or uh, Apple Music. I'm talking about paid versus free paid versus ad supported. I'm saying, you know, it's a lower quality thing. I don't think ad supported is bad. I just think that that the before picture has to be adjusted. So it's bad enough that the people who pay for it are are okay with that. You know, I mean, we only may ever make a half a billion dollars a year from ad supported services or a billion dollars in the U.S. as as a business when the business is up to eight or $10 billion. But that money will just be the last a window of the cascade of values that generates you know, the last squeal that we can get out of a project to generate more revenue. Nothing wrong with it. It's like budget records in the, in the record stores. You know, sometimes you'd see these records for four ninety nine back in the day. You know, those are records that had been out. They weren't selling. They're trying to get anything for them at this point. So, you know, it's that, it's that mo- model. It's not exclusives. This exclusive thing is kind of concerning and dangerous because 
it means that the services that we want to support, all of them, are fighting amongst themselves. And I kind of don't believe that a Beyonce thing that is a one-week holdout or a Kanye thing that might even be a month or two-month holdout is really going to help the industry. It's not like Howard Stern going to Sirius XM. When Howard Stern, he's there every day, right? It's different with a new show live every day as a personality. Beyonce's dropping a record every 18 months or two years. She's not, you know, she's not there every day. So the benefit is over a week, two weeks, a month after it's happening. It's not like Howard that's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, you're, <laughs> you, you can't get Howard Stern anywhere except Sirius. So people will subscribe to Sirius for that, you know, but they, I don't think that people are going to subscribe to Tidal just for Kanye. Right. You know, although it might, it, they might. I mean, I, I mean, I subscribed to HBO just for The Sopranos <laughs> when that was happening, you know, and then I never unsubscribed because I was too lazy to unsubscribe at that point. But uh, that was the only reason I wanted it. And, you know, people are now saying, look, I'm going to buy the shows that I want and pay for those shows, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or HBO. They can get anything, you know, anywhere. Right. And if they if they're willing to pay for it and those are the people who are also cutting cords. Right. And not paying the cable company. So it's a very complex ecosystem that's now developing and we as the independent labels, you and I, Porsche and others, are trying to be cultivators of this ecosystem to make sure that it's being designed in a way that benefits all artists to the maximum possibility. So the the last piece of this little puzzle that we're talking about is really uh, YouTube, because YouTube is something like the number one way that people consume music, and yet it pays a fraction of these other services that we've been talking about. Yeah, anybody who's listening could could Google Nelly Furtado or Debbie Harry or Nikki Six because they the three over the last two weeks have spoken out pretty vociferously about the value gap and other issues and RAAA and IFPI are speaking about the value gap and Katy Perry and others are talking about this issue. I mean, the industry is really looking at YouTube really right now because they don't have that per spin minimum per, you know, per view minimum that Spotify and, and anyone else that's in that space has. So it just turns out that their numbers look like they're significantly lower on either a per listen basis or on an ARPU basis, you know, the average revenue per user, because they're an ad supported model, seems to be at this point significantly lower than even Pandora. In fact, it's maybe half that of Pandora, if our calculations are correct. So, you know, we're looking to the industry would like to see if they can find a way to resolve that issue, you know, and you think about Pandora as a service that has amazing facility, the before picture is pretty damn good. We think that either they have to pay for that before picture or they have to make that before picture a little uglier so that it's not so enticing because the, there may be people who just say, hey, YouTube's good enough for me. Why subscribe to anything? Well, and on that hopeful note, <laughs> Tom Silverman <laughs> is the CEO and founder of Tommy Boy Entertainment. Tom, it's always a pleasure to talk to you here on The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Marnie Stern, Boats, Explode Into Colors, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. 
Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury of Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Explode into colors.